And just by means of a quick review, um, we talked about, about unrealistic expectations, how we all have expectations and uh, expectations of things that are uh, right and perfect and how things should be, and yet the church was made for imperfect people. We talked about how that um, it, it, it's not necessarily that conflict is inherent in change, but it seems that many times when change comes and lots of change comes, that uh, tensions kind of arise and conflict seems to often be a byproduct of that. And so in, in recognition of that, it's best that we equip ourselves with tools on how to best address it. And we talked about uh, how do we each walk through life with two buckets. We, approach, we see a situation that begins to flare up and we can either douse it with that one bucket of water that we carry or we can exacerbate it with that bucket of gasoline that we carry. We talked about how uh, that Christ, Christ gave up his rights, all the rights that he had, and, and we are encouraged by Paul in Philippians to take on the mind of Christ. We talked about uh, having right attitudes based on the, that principle of having the, the mind of Christ. We talked about any, any issue, problem, conflict that's big enough to involve more than one person. And certainly we have all sorts of inner conflict. I'm not sure uh, how much I want to dive in and help you with that necessarily to get into. But, we, I mean, when I say dive into tonight, we're not going to certainly, in, as a member of ministry, I, I want to help people <laughs> overcome issues. Of whatever. Okay. But we're not addressing that specifically this evening. All right. Let me reel it in here. Huh? Okay. But we're talking about interpersonal, not interpersonal conflict, and how that if it involves more than one person, that it involves uh, more than one person to resolve as well. And so we looked at traits of teamwork. This evening, we're going to dig a, a little deeper. This next portion gets a little more personal. Three weeks ago, our pastor shared a thought as he opened his uh, series of letters to, to leaders that pastoral care, and, and this is, I don't remember the exact quote, but this is what I wrote down in my journal, pastoral care is driven by context and as such is difficult to systematize. Pastoral care is driven by context and as such is difficult to systematize. And that resonated with me because I'm a systems guy. I like to figure out how to make a system work and so that it will do that over and over again. That's the point of a system. And I've been trained in, in requirements analysis, in software development, and what that means, I'm the guy up front. I do all of the, the interviews with all the stakeholders, and I, I do the, the human factors work to come up with the, uh, the requirements of what that software should do. And part of that is creating a system in which everybody can work together. And I've worked in organizational development as well uh, as that. So, I, I like to, to just sink my teeth into working out a good system. And yet, as our pastor in, insightfully noted that pastoral care 
it cannot really be systematized because it's based on context. And as we are speaking to leaders this evening, you are going to have an opportunity that when conflict arise, arises to minister. And I don't have a system for you tonight to push people through to resolve that conflict because it's going to vary based on the context. But what we do have as we look into the Word of God tonight is principles that we can apply to those contexts that we can use to guide ourselves and others through to a resolution. I open this evening in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 20. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day, he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth, his brothers, took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham, May Canaan be cursed. May, be, may he be the lowest of servants. And the King James say, says a servant of servants. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Now, this is the part of the story of Noah that they don't teach you in Sunday school. Right? They teach you about building the ark and how Noah was faithful for 120 years and he preached to people and nobody would listen and God led all the animals to him and got on and he, for 40 days and 40 nights and, and, and the, the raven and the dove and all of that they teach you in Sunday school that they don't teach you this. How that after Noah got off the ark and he had sacrificed unto God and he'd worshiped that he plants a vineyard, he drinks the fruit of the vine, gets drunk, lays naked in his tent. Uh-huh. You know, I never saw a flannel graph that included that portion of the story of Noah. And I, uh, forgive me, but every time I, you know, um, some people are well-intentioned, they, they name their, their sons Noah, and I have a, a friend who named their firstborn son Noah. And the first thing I always think of is like, oh, the rest of the story. <laughs> anyway, some commentaries explain that Noah became drunk by ignorance, not knowing the strength of the grapes with which he was working. Some purport that this may have, in fact, been the first time in history that grapes had been turned to wine. It's certainly the first time in the biblical record. And therefore, Noah was unfamiliar with the concept of fermentation. And when the process occurred inadvertently, because you leave the grape juice out long, long enough, guess what? It's going to turn. And when the process occurred inadvertently, Noah became drunk by accident. 
And I, I would say that's a plausible explanation that seeks to reconcile Noah's previously known and exhibited character with this drunken, naked act. I'm reminded of a, uh, an anecdote that Brother Tim Gaddy shared uh, several years back at Youth Congress. Uh, Brother Gaddy is, uh, now serves as the district superintendent of the Arkansas district. In fact, he was just reelected uh, this past week. And that evening at Youth Congress, he shared a story about how that when he was the youth pastor, he had a, uh, they had a wonderful service, incredible service on the Sunday night, and the altars were full, and, and people were repenting, and the power of God was at work. And the next day, he was in his office at, at the church. He was the only one there and attending, and he had one of his young people come in, and he throws a bag of weed on his desk and said, Brother Gaddy, I'm finished with it. This God convicted me. He, this, he, he just... It just touched me last night. I, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to just here, take it like this. And, and so they sat down, and God's delivered me from this. And they, they, they began talking, and they went to the sanctuary, and they prayed together and worshiped together what God had done and delivered him from this and everything. And then the young person leaves and goes, and Brother Gaddy goes back to his office and sits down at his desk, and there's a bag of weed. And so he's like, oh, okay, I don't want that to be here in case somebody else comes to the church. And so he slips it into his desk drawer, just get it out of the way. He didn't want to throw it in the garbage in case the custodial staff coming around later will just pick up, what is this? What's it? You know, they didn't want to arouse any questions or whatever. So he just slips it into his desk and, and he begins to think. He's like, wow, you know, I just, I, I'd like to just, just do something symbolic with this. Just sort of stick it to the devil you know, it seemed like, you know, if I just flushed it down the toilet, it would just, you know, it might clog the toilet. But he, he said, it just seems so final. I, I need to do something a little more dramatic, something a little more symbolic of what. And so he, he had left uh, to run an errand or go home or something, and then it clicked. He's like, ah, I know what to do. So he comes back to the church, and he goes out behind the, the church building, and he kindles a little fire, and he grabs some stones around, and he puts the fire, and he gets the fire. He's like, I'm going to send this back to hell. I'm going to give it back to Satan where it belongs. And he starts throwing it in there and, and just coaxing the fire to, to burn it. And it starts burning and the smoke's coming up and he throws more in there and it starts like this. And, and Brother Gaddy said, the more I did it, the better I felt about my decision. <laughs> oh, yes. And so, maybe it was the same with Noah. Maybe it was by ignorance that Noah ended up drunk and naked in his tent. Because if you, if you consider, how could Noah, faithful all those years in building the ark and preaching salvation to those who would not heed, after being saved from destruction, after being brought forth from the ark, after sacrificing to God, after God had renewed his covenant with him, how could he completely fail, get drunk, and expose himself in his tent? Maybe those commentaries are right, and it was simply accidental. 
And I, too, want to believe the best of Noah. He's a hero of faith, even. But I also know that from my own experience, though I am certainly no hero of the faith like Noah, I know from my own experience that my greatest times of susceptibility typically follow my greatest times of victory. And so perhaps it was also possible for Noah. Whether ignorantly or impulsively, however, the bottom line was that Noah, the patriarch of this small family, Noah was in the wrong. This biblical giant, this hero of the faith, was drunk and naked and wrong. Conflict, whether internally or externally, typically arises when someone is wrong or is perceived to be wrong. When everyone is in agreement about what's right, <laughs> that's, there's no issue, is there? Right? It's when you question whether that decision was the right call or when you expect a certain right action but don't get it. And that's when problems arise. We especially take issues to heart when we determine that the person in the wrong should know better. I, I've, got, I've got plenty of grace for people who don't know the truth, who don't have a Bible, who, who have not received this wondrous salvation. I've got plenty of grace. I expect sinners to act like sinners. But when somebody I know has received salvation and they've been in walking this way for years, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's hard because they should know better. Most often those folks are either those closest to us, right? Because those closest to us, well, we assume that they should know better. I am typically harder on my own kids than I am on other people's kids because they're my kids and they should know better. So most often those people are either those closest to us or those in authority over us. In Shem, Ham, and Japheth's case, it was both. Either way, there will always be those who we feel should know better. And those to whom you look, those who you count as influencers in your life, those to whom you have opened yourself up and allowed their voice to speak into your spirit, in your natural family, and even in your spiritual family, will, at times, in moments perhaps of poor judgment 
or weakness, they will reveal their nakedness to you. They will lose their cool. They will not respond properly in the face of conflict. They will reveal their nakedness to you. And in those moments, you witness things that perhaps you'd rather not know. You'd wish they hadn't said that. You'd wish they hadn't done that. And yet you're now privy to it. You want to think the best of them, or I hope that you do. And you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but they leave you no recourse to do so in the moment. They may fly off the handle and lose their temper. They may break a confidence. They may cast themselves in the best light and others, even yourself, in a far less flattering light. And you feel like, what's the deal? I've been thrown under a bus here. I trusted you and you failed me, betrayed me even. They may fail to submit to authority or overstep their authority. They may even sin, out and out sin, ignorantly or impulsively, but sin is still sin. In doing any of these examples and more, they present you with an opportunity not to honor them. They present you with an opportunity in the moment of that conflict, in the moment of that response, you now have an opportunity not to honor them. Their actions seemingly give us an excuse to no longer esteem them as we once did. But I implore you, leaders, church, don't take that opportunity. Don't accept that excuse. To be part of the solution means not walking away emotionally or spiritually from them. That does not mean that you approve of what they have or haven't done. It seems pretty clear that Shem and Japheth did not approve of what had happened to their father and what their father had done. And yet, these brothers handled it in such a way that covering was provided that covering was provided in a naked moment for someone close to them, someone to whom they looked up to. Noah didn't wake up and say to Ham, my bad. Oh, oh, that, that's on me. Yeah, yeah, Ham, you were justified in reacting as you did. Right? Noah didn't say that when he woke up. No. No, he cursed Ham. In, in fact, he went one step further and did not curse Ham directly, but cursed Ham's son, Canaan. You see, it didn't just affect Ham alone, but his family and his children and their children and so on. And let me just throw in here for a moment. Generational curses, Right? I don't believe in voodoo, hocus pocus, all right? We need to be careful when people start talking about curses and blessings and stuff like this, okay? We need to be grounded 
within the Bible. Generational curses tend to be those poor decisions that are modeled repeatedly before the next generation until they repeat it themselves and begin modeling it in front of the next generation. And so the curse perpetuates itself. Ham's failure was not in seeing his father uncovered. Sometimes we just can't help see that nakedness, that moment where, where somebody has done something or said something and, and we're, we're a witness to it. We just can't help it. I'm, not, I'm sure that Ham was not expecting to la di da di da walk into the tent and, whoa, get an eyeful, Right? That wasn't the bad part. Ham's wrongdoing was twofold. Number one, Ham failed to rectify the situation and bring restoration, to bring covering to Noah. That's the first thing. He had an opportunity to bring covering, and he didn't do it. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 22 and then continue right on into Galatians chapter 6. Of course, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he did not add the the verses and the chapters. Those were added much, much later. And so we're going to read his continuous flow here from chapter 5 into chapter 6. Beginning to read at verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things, or some translations render it, there is no limit. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us also follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited, it's not, we think, oh, we're living by the Spirit. We're doing, hey, we got it going on. And then Paul says, don't become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. These are possibilities even when living in the Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly Help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Don't be conceited or provoking or jealous. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You're not that pretty. You're not that important. Previously in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about beginning to read at verse 14. Paul references the law. We just, we just read about the law of Christ, fulfilling, obeying the law of Christ. Well, Paul said that in Galatians 5.14 that the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. 
Beware of destroying one another. Because in those moments where somebody has done something they should not have done, and they have revealed their nakedness, and they have given us an opportunity, oh, well, they shouldn't have done that, and I could go tell somebody, or I can chew them down, or I can speak, I'm biting and devouring them. I'm destroying them. And we can even think, well, they did this, and so I'm justified in reacting this. No, no, we're not. We're not. Ham was not, and we are not either. Ham, so I, I, I tend to read Scripture through my own eyes, and there's times where I need to step out and be as objective as possible, and other times where I just kind of fall into it. And I'm a firstborn, as I've shared before, and so I read about Ham's action, and he reminds me, because I'm a firstborn, I sort of see it through that, that filter. It reminds me of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. That elder brother was all indignant that his younger brother was restored to a place of honor in the household after all he had done to disgrace it. And in that light, let me just say, talking about Ham, talking about the, the elder brother here, that I pray that you'll give me grace and latitude as I say this, but morality police do not belong in the church. And it is not the pastor's job to be chief of the morality police. <laughs> the pastor's job is not to be chief of morality police. We're talking to leaders here tonight. This is meaty stuff, I recognize. But it's important. The pastor and pastoral leadership are shepherds leading and guiding, under shepherds leading and guiding, not dictating or browbeating. They will protect the flock when necessary, and we can count on our pastor to protect the flock when and if necessary. But most often, they come alongside someone in need to help them realize the best possibilities that God has in store for them, regardless of their past or present situation. Discernment is a job requirement. Condemnation is no one's job, but God's ultimately. Discernment, not condemnation. And so, returning to Ham, returning to the action, in fact, to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal, firstborns do tend to value structure and rules to a greater degree than their younger siblings. Yeah, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become problematic if and when they begin to resent those who do not adhere to the structure and follow the rules like they do, right? Because I, I recognize within myself how I used to resent my younger brother that he'd get away with, with murder, right? He wasn't following the rules. Why, 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 yeah. And so it can be in the church as well. The firstborns or the elders 
in the church. Sometimes we can say, hey, this is the way it should be done. Here are the structure and the rules, and you're not following it. God, give me more grace. Right? Ham, however, was the baby of the family. Japheth was the oldest. The youngest often resents rules and structure, not on principle necessarily, but they resent the rules and structure as they apply to them. They can feel that they are the exception to the rule, even while still insisting that others follow the rules and, of course, pointing out when they don't. Right? The reason people most often attempt to make others look bad, even when they've done something bad, is to make themselves look good. If we're honest with ourselves, right? Or at least a little better. And there's no sense in looking good unless other people are watching. And so Ham's first wrongdoing was in failing to bring covering and restoration to his father as he lay naked before him. Ham's second wrongdoing was telling others out of either contempt or disdain or as a tattletale possibly to make himself look better. He went out, didn't didn't rectify, left his dad still naked and exposed there, and went and told his brothers, hey, get a load of dad. You should see him. I can't believe what he's done. So, principles. How did Jesus instruct to deal with such issues? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Of all Jesus' teachings... And we refer many times to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. We, we refer to Jesus and the great commission that he gives the church. Of all his teachings, this may, in fact, be the least frequently taught and practiced in our churches today. Matthew chapter 18. Beginning to read at verse 15. If another believer sins against you, they've exposed nakedness. Go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. And this dovetails wonderfully with James chapter 5, verse 16. James 5, 16 is in the King James Version is translated, confess your faults one to another. And that word faults literally means sins. Confess your sins one to another. And I could, for years, never reconcile. What do you mean confess my sins? We don't have confessional booths set up in our, our churches and we're, we're sharing it. I don't want to tell Brother Matt my sins, what I've done, whatever. And he probably doesn't want to hear, quite frankly. All right? I don't want to hear your sins. So, God, how do I, how do I reconcile this? But when we understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 18... We understand what James is saying in, in chapter 5, verse 16. And in, in a, um, a less well-known translation, the Passion Translation, I found a wonderful rendering that I think accurately portrays this, which says, confess and acknowledge 
how you have offended one another. The, the confessing is not to one another, but the sins that you have done to one another, you confess. Confess and acknowledge how you have offended one another, and then pray one for another to be instantly healed. <laughs> for tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. And so, returning to Matthew chapter 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Verse 16, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Bring those who can mediate, those of influence, those who can keep their mouth shut because it doesn't have to go beyond them. Verse 17, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So you get to excommunicate them. Right? Is that what it's saying? That's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying when we consider how Jesus dealt with publicans and sinners. What did Jesus do with publicans and sinners? He reached out with tax collectors. He called Matthew to be one of the 12. He forced no one, but he did provide opportunity. He did provide opportunity. And it doesn't mean that they get kicked out or they don't. Uh, that's, that's not what it's saying. I have seen Matthew chapter 18 in action in more than one case. It's usually that very first step brings resolution. When people come together with a right spirit and want to, to bring unity and restoration back to the body, that's, it, it rarely goes beyond that. But I have in one case seen it go all the way to the third step in which it's been brought before the church. And you know what? At that point, there was restoration. Because guess what? It follows a biblical model. And we're never going to go wrong as awkward and as challenging and as much courage as it takes to fulfill these scriptures. And it does. That's why we don't practice them in our churches. It's still the Bible. And it still works. And God is still God and his word is still his word. There is only one type of person. Well, you know what? I guess we're going to have a part three after all. I've just got too much bore. I'm about halfway through my notes this evening. Well, let's stand. I just feel that this is a good point to, to break. I feel that the Lord has settled something. As I said, this is a lot, I know, but we're talking to leaders. God has deposited something into your spirits tonight. And I pray, and I, as pastor was sharing, 